Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 21. It's awesome that you're giving up a little bit of your time to listen into the podcast. I'm your host Daniel Oyston and in what feels like Groundhog Day, because I feel like I say this pretty much every episode, we do have a cracker for you. I think it's it's got a little bit of everything and certainly, look, it starts in Australia and flies uh, through the Middle East and uh, through the UK around uh, to the US and back through New Zealand and uh, to Australia. So with Mark being in the UK for October and myself travelling to New Zealand and, and been on a few other small trips, we've got a truckload of shout outs to give to people. Now, a few of these came about because just in general conversation, people said to me that they they love the podcast and, and then I'd say to them, well, why haven't you let me know? Because I didn't even know you listened to it. Let me know. I can give you a shout out. So a few of these I've just kept a list of and I've just dropped them into this list of shout outs for this episode. But if you haven't had a shout out yet, then be one of those people. Drop me a line. Let me know. We'll read your name out and say hi on the podcast. So First off is a shout-out to Hannah McFarlane, who's the sponsorship executive at Harlequins Rugby, who caught up with Mark while he was recently in the UK. Uh, Lisa Packwood, event and alliance manager at Subaru. Uh, Lisa connected with and messaged me on LinkedIn, uh, saying that she's really enjoying the podcast and it's useful information for both sides of partnerships. So thanks for that, Lisa. Uh, I also went and uh, said hello and introduced myself to Mike Keach, at the New Zealand Sponsorship Summit in Auckland a couple of weeks ago. Um, Mike sat on a panel, a, a Q&A panel, to talk about influencer marketing. And uh, he said to me he's been listening to the show and finding some of the episodes uh, really enjoyable. Um, also, Scott Fraunhofer, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Scott, my apologies if I haven't, uh, who followed us on Twitter. Um, and it caught my attention because he's not only the owner at FC Buffalo in the United States, he also lists himself on his Twitter profile as the kit cleaner. So uh, Scott messaged me to say, loves the insights and the interviews on the show. So thanks for getting in touch, Scott. Uh, Lawrence West at Hockey Australia, who has recently moved internally into the GM of commercial uh, role and reached out to let me know that he's been enjoying the practical usability of the insights that we try and pull together in the discussion on the podcasts. Uh, And Lawrence, we look forward to catching up with you soon. Um, Also, Fergus Bennett Odlam, who is an account exec at SportCal in the UK. I know he's just started listening, so I said I'd give him a shout out as well. Uh, Mark Pangallo from Adelaide United, who I caught up with a few weeks back, along with uh, a couple of uh, his team. Great to see you guys, Mark. Uh, and he told me that he also tells people in the office to listen to the podcast while you're traveling. So hello to everyone in the office at Adelaide United. Uh, Stuart Ramsey, head of sponsorship at Southampton Football Club, uh, who said the podcast is keeping him entertained on his 90-minute drive to and from Southampton. So very conscious of trying to bump uh, uh, the, the joke level up there for you, Stuart, keep you entertained. Uh, and lastly, a big thanks and a shout-out to Paul Robinson from the Gold Coast Titans, who suggested I should invite his wife on the show. And so that's exactly what I did because... Paula Robinson is a partner at Minter Ellison and also head of legal Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. So there is loads of great advice in her interview in this episode around how both brands and rights holders can navigate the legal areas of sponsorship. But before we hear from Paula, we're going to speak to two sponsor staff members. Firstly, Mark Thompson and then Sam Irvine. Regular listeners know we always have a bit of a chat to Mark about his recent blog. But I also sat down with Sam as today as we record... It was his first day on the job as our new account manager for Australia and New Zealand. 
Here's Sam. Sam Irvine, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. First day on the job, did you note that I like my coffee just straight black? I should have been one of the first things I checked, actually, but I didn't <laughs> note that. Now, I wanted to get you on the show to introduce you to our millions of listeners all over the world, and I thought the best way to do that would do, would be to do a quick uh, Q&A session with you. Are you ready? Oh, definitely. Hopefully, I don't speak too fast and everyone can understand a bit of my Aussie twang. All right. So, you ready? Yeah, betcha. That's correct. Well done. That's first question. You're off to a good start. Where were you born? Young. Sorry, yes, New South Wales. I grew up in Young, just down the road. Home of the uh, cherries. Cherry pickers. Very good. Yeah. Star sign? Aries. Is that the crazy one? No, it's the, uh, or they do, uh, it's slightly crazy. Yeah, actually. right. Daffy okay. Dark, I think it's uh, <laughs> applied to the Aries. Married? Yes. Want to give her a shout out? A Rochelle Carlefeld, lovely, lovely lady. <laughs> Kids? Two, little lovely angels, Harvey and Addison. And where were you working before you joined Sponsurf? And what were you doing there? Capital Football. That's the uh, member federation for soccer slash football for the ACT and surrounding region. And I was the business manager there. As a little welcome, welcoming gift, we put three photo frames on your desk, which are three sporting events that are on your bucket list. What are they and why? So the first one was the Sydney Swans winning a uh, grand final, an AFL grand final. Luckily, they've already done that in my lifetime a couple of times, but I wasn't present. So they they would have to be my favourite football team or sporting team in the whole whole world, I guess. So that would be it. And the next one was the Giro d'Italia. I really love cycling. I love doing it. Um, I've been and seen the Tour de France and the Giro, I just love watching it on TV. So as long as I can avoid a stage when it's snowing, then I'm really going to really <laughs> enjoy the Giro, I think. And the US Open, tennis is probably my um, my favourite sport, uh, particular, particularly for participation. I really enjoyed playing it growing up. Played for it at uh, in private school, played for it at uni, etc. So I really enjoy it. So US Open, love to get over there and check out Flushing Meadows. Very good. Well, if you work hard enough, the paths can take you anywhere. What's your favourite food? Would... Probably Turkish. Yeah? Yeah, Turkish or Mexican. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Not a big fan of Turkish. Oh, really? It's the same everywhere you go. Yeah, you're right. Except in Turkey. Have you been to Turkey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you have. If you've been to Turkey, you I don't remember a lot of it, to be fair. <laughs> um, now, your wife, who you gave a shout out to a minute ago, uh, she is a sponsor of in her role. How long do you estimate it'll be until you are the best user of sponsor in your family? I think I am already. I know you like to think oh. I'm not. And, uh, and try, I've been trying to pick her brain the last two, uh, 10 days I had off in between uh, Capital Football and here, and she just got sick of me talking sponsor. So I think I'm the best already. So you played a little bit of tennis when you were growing <laughs> up. What else did you play? Uh, lots of... Rugby, because I was a little fat, uh, little fat kid that was in a prop, and I slowly moved from prop to second row to halfback. I lost a lot of weight at uh, in boarding school when I wouldn't eat, being the fussy country boy I was. Uh, a little bit of rugby league and a lot of soccer from a young age, and I like playing a bit of social soccer slash football now. But I love triathlons and running. What do you reckon the best thing about working in the sponsorship industry is? networking and the get the different people you get to meet and the different stories you get to to listen to and tell yourself other than working for sponsor what did you always want to be while you when you were growing up for me one of the big goals was um ceo of the atp tour so the men's tennis tour was that was always going to be one of the big 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 goals that i would uh, would love to have been in um and any commercial role within the sydney swans at the moment would probably be something really attractive for me as well favorite all-time sporting memory either you were there or watched it on tv 
probably two. One of them is it's really hard to go past John Aloisi's penalty to, yes. to beat Uruguay to put the Socceroos in. And I remember it because... I reckon my heart rate was about 240 <laughs> that night. I should have died. I didn't realise you could you could get so emotionally involved in the sport that you didn't really play and you didn't really follow a team so much until that stage. Did and you I remember, cry? I just remember running up and down the stairs of our apartment block and just banging on doors and getting just... The feeling was immense. And then the, also the second one was when Leighton won Wimbledon. Yeah. With that feeling that finally an Aussie had cracked it after Paddy had left us, let us down a couple of times. And then uh, um, it's just, uh, Leighton's my favourite individual athlete ever. So really seeing him win that after winning the US Open, that was a great feeling. Did so. you cry when we qualified for that Soccer World Cup Japan? I don't know if we did. I cried. I think we cr- I cried, actually. I cried when we beat Japan because I had a broken collarbone and a mate jumped on me. And, <laughs> and it was still healing. Do it. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, Sam Irvine, Account Manager Australia and New Zealand. Thanks for joining us. Get back to work. Thank you very much. As I mentioned earlier, I also spent some time in Auckland, uh, specifically went to attend the Sponsorship Summit uh, in Auckland, the first uh, ever Sponsorship Summit. And it was a great opportunity to bring uh, loads of rights holders and brands together to talk about sponsorship, helping each other, sharing advice. And I took my microphone along to get some views from some of the attendees on what they found great about the summit. Glenn Critchley, Commercial Manager of the Vodafone Warriors. It's been a, um, a, an interesting couple of days. I think getting uh, all the different brands and rights holders in the same room uh, in New Zealand is, is absolutely key for the industry. I don't think it happens enough, so this sort of thing is hopefully you know, one for the future and long may it continue. Ian Sargent from Paralympics New Zealand. I look after all of our commercial partners from a partner servicing point of view. I uh, found these two days really really valuable because it's um, there's some really key themes that have run throughout what everyone's talked about. One that really stuck out for me was the way that um, NZME, NZME spoke yesterday about the, the way that they uh, partner with the Herald but then provide very transparent reporting back and forth um, across events that they deliver together. So um, yeah, I think that's a, a good example and something that we strive to do in our organisation as well with all of our, all of our partners. Uh, my name is Jocelyn, I'm the Managing Director of The Platform, we're a music agency um, and the thing as a rights holder that's stuck out to me the most is how many uh, sponsors are standing up and talking about the fact that you need to understand their company objectives um, and it's really kind of hammered home that it feels like a lot of sponsors currently are feeling not heard they're feeling like they haven't had their objectives understood um, and from a rights holder perspective it's really interesting to hear that because it means I'm gonna be going back and reevaluating how we communicate with partners and potential sponsors and um, really making sure that our research matches what their um, values company values are. John T. Kimmies of Ensign Markets Network's lead PwC New Zealand. Probably the presentation I enjoyed the most was um, Emily Trevers from NZME yesterday. Um, I really liked it. She gave some really good, clear insights both about um, the reach and power of NZME but also about the way that they work in a partnership scale and as one of those organisations that is in partnership with NZME on some projects um, I felt that uh, it reflected really clearly that both the drive of the organisation and the way that they work with their partners is completely congruent with the way that they're working with us. So it was great to see that what they're pushing out as a message is actually what they're delivering. Nick Rowland, I'm Managing Director from Side by Side Bespoke Partnerships. Um, great couple of days at the Sponsorship Summit. I really enjoyed getting to know a lot of people within the industry. We don't really get you know, together a lot, so um, it's a good time to get, to get everyone together for a couple of days and, and talk sponsorship stuff that we're all interested in. 
Um, my name's Sophie Mode and I'm the brand and sponsorship manager at the Kids Can Charitable Trust. Uh, it's been a really interesting time at the Sponsorship Summit, a really diverse mix of presenters and I think as a charity and a rights holder it's really interesting to understand from the corporate's point of view what they want to see in a pitch and a new business opportunity and an enduring partnership um, for us to consider as we continue to grow. Hi, I'm Steve Gregory from Wellington City Council, I'm a business improvement leader and I think the one thing I've taken out of um, this conference is going back to the realigning yourself with your organisation's objectives. I think all too often we lose sight of that. We get all, all set up in what we're trying to do, but it's going back to the objectives. That's the key thing that I've got out of this. Mark Thompson, welcome back. Hey, mate. Where have you been? Been in the mother country. Good trip? It was a very good trip, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so we, um, you know, we're... Going through the process of setting the business up in the UK, we've got a limited liability company over there now, we've got our... Uh, so grown up. <laughs> we've got a few, all of our uh, you know legal and accounting processes established, a few strategic networks, and I met with a lot of, a lot of really good uh, rights holders and brands um, to introduce them to our business, and you know, hopefully we can do some business with those guys down the track. And you're getting back on the plane next week. Eight days from now, I'm heading back over. For how long? A week. And is there much chance for people to catch up with you again while you're over there, or are you chock a block? Uh, the evenings I'm free. The weekend I'm free. I'm. Uh, I'll be trying to catch the Wallabies versus Scotland game on the Saturday evening, the twelfth. So feel free for anybody that wants to have a beer, come and uh, watch me yell at the television. <laughs> <laughs> there will probably be a lot of that, whether it's a good or a bad result. There's usually usually yelling at the television. Now, while you were over there, you went to the Leaders Conference. For yep. those people who maybe aren't familiar with the Leaders Conference, what's it all about? Uh, the Leaders Conference is probably the number one, well, definitely the number one um, sports, business, and um you know, future trends conference in the world. There's two a year. There's one in the US um, in, and one in the UK. So um, it's a week of conferences and there's four different conferences across the week. But the main one is the Sports Business Summit, uh, which is the one I attended. But they also have the Future Leaders um, section, which it was on the Friday, which is uh, this year. It was about sort of women in sport and, and you know, the future leaders of, of sport. There was also a digital and stadium summit earlier in the week um i got the privilege of going to the leaders under 40 awards which is tuxedo tuxedo where they uh Very where they flash re recognize the world's um best leaders under the age of 40 is our and what did you win did you win no i didn't win oh. i well I, I won a i had a free ticket free ticket to dinner that's a couple, couple of bottles of white winner winner chicken dinner yeah, it was good mate um but no I had there was a few friends of ours that were actually nominated and did quite well won won awards so yes. Um, yeah, and cool. so overalls conference, would you recommend people go? Definitely, mate. It was a very good conference, and the conference itself isn't a standard structure. The um, the sessions are separate from the actual main conference bit. It was at Stanford Bridge at Chelsea, which is an enormous and unreal stadium. But uh, the the actual conference, the 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 big sort of centre of it all, with all the, the booths and the um, you know people that are sort of walking around and the coffee and all of that, it's all its all focused around networking. So there's different tables you can sit at. Um, there's position for you to, you know, do product demos. The, it's its all focused around that. And then if you want to take in a session, you've actually got to walk away from all of that. Yeah, right. So it's, it's focused around the networking, which is, you know, what 
I believe conferences are all about. But you did make your, your way to a couple of sessions, and yeah. that's what your blog is yeah. on uh, last week. Yeah, I did. I went to a few sessions across both days. But, um, yeah, the, the networking was my favourite bit. <laughs> uh, and, and so you, you picked up a couple of key takeaways or lessons around event sponsorship, correct? Yeah, I went to sort of three different sponsorship focused sessions plus uh, uh, some esports e ones and, and what, whatever as well but there was one specific sponsorship uh, session which I found really insightful um, and it was around event sponsorship and specifically they spoke about the Olympics the Rio Olympics and um, and then looking forward towards Tokyo. And so what are some of those what's the first key learning that you took away? Uh, the key learning I took away was um, so around the event sponsorship objectives of the sponsor should be both about sponsorship rights and supply rights. So it's an event-based sponsorship. Um, so the separating those two things is really important. So is that are you saying that they should have the, the the sponsorship and the naming rights or official designation, but also separate that from say supplying the drinks or the shoes or whatever? Yeah, because they are two very different uh, things, um, and. The, the people that were explaining, um, you know, the, the process around the Rio Olympics especially were, you know, talking through the whole really minute category and stuff like that type of things, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the, the whole sponsorship of the of the Olympic Games versus the supply of the Olympic Games are two very different conversations because, you know, the bigger the events get, the more leverage you have off that from a sponsorship point of view. And then the supply is just for a very finite period of time so although albeit on a very large scale yeah of course and it's more of a commercial arrangement rather than you know it's just purely focused on getting sales through supply rather than all the other things you can leverage at a, a sponsorship exactly right and sponsorship doesn't necessarily equate supply either okay so that's number one the objective should include or, or, or separate both the, the actual sponsorship and the supply what's number two so product category is an important upfront conversation. So, you know, I, I admit at the start of this blog that sometimes event sponsorship confuses me, you know, and I've worked around across sponsorship my whole life. So I, I'd be surprised if there was a lot of other people that, out there that weren't confused at times by it as well. Um, and one thing I've always assumed is that, you know, if you're a, a, a brand and you're sponsoring an event, you want to block out as many competitors as possible. So you want a broad product category, if possible. And as a rights holder, I've offered broad product categories um, when I've sort of done deals and things like that. But um, the guys at the, at the conference, and there was Samsung in particular, was talking. And um, they were speaking about the, the more specific product category um, that they get, the better for them. And the Olympics guys were talking about the same thing. And it was, it was all around... If you can discuss um, what the objectives of the brand are and, and what the opportunities that the brand want to achieve out of it are, then you can hone in on a really spe specific product supply. And um, what they were talking about was they had the opportunity to be the official technology partner of the Rio Olympic Games. And, um, you know, for me, that would be a pretty big, in this day it and seems age, Seems unwieldy, category. though. But it's huge, right? Yeah. So, but that, but that, that wasn't sort of realistic for them because they were just really pushing the personal device. So that, you know, your handhelds, your phones, all that sort of stuff. So the really specific personal device partner enabled them to really hone on on certain products and push them through the Olympic channel, which is, you know, a very specific 
product sort of category and then they can hone in on it. But then you, you look at similar things like um, the official bank is separate from the official foreign currency exchange. The official soft drink is different from the official water. Even though these companies all provide um, those services, what they're looking, which part of their business they're looking to drive through this partnership is the product category they should hone in on. Yeah, and it's also you would imagine that you know if if Samsung were the official technology partner, most lay people can't tell where that starts and stops. So yeah. the the times that you see on the screen is that part of technology because it's digital. Are they supplying the laptops for the judges where they really like you said hone in and focus on personal devices? It also gives them the opportunity well, to be really clear about what they're partnering with and supplying but also to create some content around that stuff really niche and focused rather than big and and you know trying to focus people on all of it which is like like where the hell do you draw the line yeah and and one other thing they really spoke about was that if they can then do their product category really well in terms of a sponsorship activation and promotion but then also if they are the supply rights partner of that as well if they can do that really well and then they've only got one little thing to focus on and then somebody else has their own little area to focus on that does a few things it makes for a better event so therefore their brand is then elevated for being part of a much better and a well-received event. But it also means that there's more money then for um, the rights holder because they're able to break the product category up further. So therefore, the the, the desperation and the ask and the, the need for cash is not as high and you're actually asking for value-driven properties rather than need-driven properties. Yeah, and, and the, the, the brands probably see it as more or easy, more easy to take on smaller chunks than whole of tech. Yeah. And there's probably opportunities for people that might sometimes compete to actually get together and leverage each other's partnerships. Exactly right. Okay, so number three? Activate differently in different markets. Now, this one was a very good discussion, and, and it actually the, there was a discussion amongst the room on this point. They took good questions and... They had good feedback and, you know, as, as with everything at these sorts of events, a lot of people put their hand up for a question and made a statement instead. Yeah. <laughs> My question is uh, three parts, blah, 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 blah. And they don't ask questions, yeah, they talk exactly. about themselves. So what was your question? <laughs> but, you know, that generated some good discussion anyway. But basically, to break this down really simply, you've got different markets, you've got your internal um, resources as well. So you've got, you know, the, the people that are activating in those markets and every you know, country and region around the world will have different ability to activate through whatever resources. That might be skills, it might be budget, it might be capabilities, it might even be the consumer market that that is different everywhere. So the way you dif- differentiate your activation markets is really important. But also, if you've got your host city, so in the Olympic Games was Brazil, Rio, that's going to have a l- much larger engagement period because it's a host than say Australia or the UK where it really only gets exciting in the last few months leading in. Well, and if you if you've lived in a country that's hosted the Olympics in the last 20 years, maybe a little bit more, you definitely understand the excitement and the engagement around the event when it's in your country. So when it was in Australia in 2000, it felt like the Olympics went for 3 years. Yeah. This year it's like, oh, the Olympics start on Thursday. Yes. So the the key things under that point are tailor your activations based around the consumer ha- habits of the different markets. And consider the capabilities of the local offices to activate. So you want to just activate to the best capacity of your local office because they're the ones that will be carrying it out. 
Very good. So, anything else to cover off? Well, the, the, I mean, there were feelings around the room that, that sort of led to the discussion at the start. And there was a statement made at the very start of the discussion um, that sort of drove into those three things. And that there's no point even entering into a partnership if you don't have aligned values. So if your brand doesn't have aligned values with the event organiser and the actual event themselves, then you're never going to get to that point where you're you're agreeing on the appropriate product category where you're allowing the proper activations where you why are people still talking about this everybody we talk to every conference we go to half the blogs we read every podcast we talk about it's about aligning values and objectives yet still people struggle with it it's because i think um values and objectives change so often so the flexibility is then really important in that, which is the second part of my, my sort of closing paragraph. So, you know, the, the ability to change on the run, to, to pivot um, your, you know, event objectives and As alignment. markets change or exactly. businesses get bought and sold or add, add categories or products. You or know, or in, the, or in the case of the AOC, is rules change around sponsorship, mm. which we've seen some big stuff around it. it it's sort of really important to continually check values and, f- and objectives of your partners. So the conversation has to be had all the time. And of course, if you want to read right through all of that, just head along to sponsor.net. You want to catch up with Mark uh, for some uh, post five o'clock networking activities. You can get in contact with him at uh, mark at sponsor.net. Have a safe trip and we'll see you probably for the next podcast. Yes. You'll be back for that. Yep. All right. See you then. Cheers, mate. Our guest this week is Paula Robinson. Paula is a senior corporate and commercial lawyer and partner with Minter Ellison and is also the head of legal for the 2018 Commonwealth Games Corporation. She graduated first in her class from her Juris Doctor Law degree at Bond University and also holds an undergraduate commerce degree from Deakin University. In addition to her experience as a lawyer, Paula has over 12 years experience in executive management, marketing and business development roles. Paula is a highly skilled general corporate and commercial lawyer, but her primary area of practice is sports law. She has specialist expertise in areas such as sponsorship, strategy development, risk management, governance, licensing, compliance, and high-level contract negotiations and drafting. Paula also helped establish the Bond University Pro Bono Legal Clinic and continues to donate her time to the clinic as a founding member of the clinic's advisory board and as the clinic's managing legal practitioner. Here's Paula. Paula Robinson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. Paula, a little birdie told me that you won an award last week. You won (laughs) the Lawyers Weekly Women in Law Award for Special Counsel of the Year. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It it was a a fun one to win. We had a good night. It sounds very important, that award. uh, What's the background that, that meant that you got that award? Uh, well, it's a national awards and it's open up to sort of women in the profession. So it's sort of identifying um, the leading women across various categories in the legal profession. And um, so for, it was for the last financial year. So my official title for that year was special counsel. So that was the category that I was in and um, went down uh, just for, you know, a fun night out with the team and, uh, and then was surprised to find that I was the winner. So I had um, speech prepared and um, really had to wing it but it was a good night and it was a you know a very pleasant surprise we uh, had fun very good now before you became a high-flying lawyer winning awards all over the country what was your first ever job um, well a very glamorous job actually I was 
um, a part-time service attendant at a deli at the local supermarket. And um, as a vegetarian, I especially enjoyed putting all the uh, chickens on the rotisserie skewer every Saturday morning. And um, so uh, it was sort of a short-lived job, but uh, that was my first gig. So uh, you've got to sort of own it, don't you? Yes. <laughs> I can't say that uh, I would have thought you would have lasted long being a vegetarian in that role. <laughs> So uh, from working in the deli uh, as a vegetarian to your progression up until your current role, what's been your pathway to your current job? Um, well, uh, I don't want to give too much away about how old I am, but um, I, I sort of progressed from deli attendant to truck driver. And um, so once I graduated, I did a Bachelor of Commerce as my first degree. And uh, so I graduated from that and got a job as a a full-time sales rep for a florist supply and uh, that required me to get a heavy-duty truck licence and essentially drive around Victoria selling supplies out of the back of my truck. Um, so at that point in my career I was armed with a degree and a heavy-duty truck licence and, and thought uh, there's absolutely no stopping me from here. Um, but uh, progressed from that on to sort of various sales and marketing roles in, you know, predominantly in the tourism sector and um, did a, a fair bit of private consulting for about five or six years. But I had some pretty fun jobs during that time. I worked for Mount Fuller and worked for a resort in Broome in WA and, um, and I'm actually really grateful for those experiences because they, A, gave me a really good view of the commercial side of life. So... As a lawyer later in my career, I was able to sort of tackle things probably a little bit differently to most lawyers because I knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of legal advice. Um, but also, you know, law can be a fairly dry profession. And so, um, you know, I look back and I'm glad that I had a, a law prior to the, a career prior to the law where, um, you know, I was able to sort of ski around. Um, Mount Buller and swan around the beaches of um, Broome and um, and sort of live large, so to speak. So um, so that was sort of my first career, and then I um, had had children. So my first son, um, he was sort of two years old, and I thought oh, I really would like to go back to work, but had lost all confidence in my ability to sort of interact with adults and other business people. And so I thought, oh, here's an easier option. Why don't I go and become a lawyer instead? Not sure if that was really sound thinking at the time, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what sent me off to law school. And, um, you know, got, got to the end of my first semester and topped my class and thought, oh, I might actually be not too bad at this. And, um, and so finished the degree, got a job with Minter Ellison, which was sort of a bit of a plum role post-graduation and I've been with Minters ever since and have been lucky enough um, to really have a, a sort of evolve a few times within the firm into various roles, started off as a planning and environment lawyer and um, had a stint as a franchising lawyer and then sort of moved into that corporate and commercial and now I'm sort of advising in the sector that I used to work in as a marketing and business development consultant. So I've sort of come full circle. 
So part of that evolution and progression at, at Minter Ellison has been uh, elevation of partner, and now your role at the moment is that you're head of legal for the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. Now, that sounds very important. What does that role entail, and, and what sort of team do you have supporting you in that? Um, yeah. yeah, look, I guess it is a really important role. I don't sort of see myself as being very important, but um, I think, you know, the day-to-day of it, we just sort of get in and get the job done. Um, but we are always really mindful of how critical our role is. Um, and I often get asked, you know, what what do you do? You know, um, and depending on where people's own reality sits, um, some people are like, oh, so you do all the sponsorship agreements. Other people will say, oh, do you organise all the tickets? And, you know, everyone <laughs> has their own idea on what uh, it is that I do. But essentially every single component of the Commonwealth Games has a contract that sits behind it and I'm responsible for overseeing all those contracts. So um, by the end of the Games, there'll be three or 4,000 contracts that will have been entered into and... Um, and, you know, it's my job to make sure that they're all done properly. So it is quite a large role and um, and I guess very easy to feel overwhelmed by just the, you know, sheer capacity of work that we've got ahead of us. Um, but I'm really lucky in that I'm supported by just the most amazing team. I mean, you know, I've got some of the best sports lawyers in the country working for me and, um we have this fantastic culture that, you know, I'd love to take credit for, but it's it's all them. You know, they they get in, they roll their sleeves up, they get the job done. There's no airs and graces, no egos. They're just all about, you know, we're here for a reason. Let's get in, let's work hard and let's have fun in the process. So um, it really does, you know, it sounds a bit cliche, but it just makes coming to work an absolute pleasure regardless of, you know, what um, complexity of work awaits us. I think that sounds uh, very uh, a situation that a lot of people might be envious of. So, uh, when you when you start work with a brand, what are some of the key things or main areas you look at immediately? So straight away, maybe in the first week or so, to ensure they're not at risk or they're being or they are set up for success in the sponsorship space. I think, um, you know, there's some sort of basics that that we would look at straight away. So making sure that um, you know, that their brand is protected, so whether they've registered their trademarks, all those sorts of things. Um, and then something that not, you know, most people are aware they need to register their brands. Others um, aren't as familiar with monitoring, monitoring and enforcing sort of infringements, so that's often where we might spend a little bit of time. Um, but Generally, I think the key thing for brands is to have a very clear idea up front of what they want to get out of the sponsorship, um, how they can leverage their brands, what are the synergies between, you know, their brand and the rights holders' brand. Um, I think a lot of groundwork that's done up front can really set the tone for a, a really sort of rewarding sponsorship experience. Well, well on that point, when a... When a brand starts thinking about entering into a, a new sponsorship with a rights holder, 
Is there anything or what are some of those things that they should be discussing and, and putting on the table early on in the discussions with the rights holder to ensure that things don't get slowed down later or maybe become a sticking point or be the reason that a, a sponsorship doesn't progress? I think, you know, probably one of the most critical things, and look, I'm a big believer in, in sort of fairly collaborative negotiation, and I know that can sort of sound like a, um, a bit of an oxymoron, but um, I sort of believe that if, if parties are sort of working towards a, a mutual outcome, then the negotiations definitely run more smoothly. There's still usually contentious issues that you have to work through, but generally both parties are then working towards the same goal. So... Um, I think it's really important for brands to be very open and upfront about what they would like to achieve out of the sponsorship. Um, rights holders these days are usually fairly good at um, coming up with packages really tailored to a particular brand's requirements. Um, I think one of the days where, you know, there's a stock standard offering and you sort of like it or lump it, I think for the most part, rights holders want to accommodate and want to come up with something that really works for a sponsor. So the earlier you can, you can put those things on the table, the more likely you are to sort of get the outcome that you want. Um, I've seen deals stalled because brands too late in the game, sort of they get given the stock standard suite of rights and benefits and then um, sort of get their nose out of joint because it's not what they wanted. Um, and so the deal sort of stalls or, or slows down and, um, and and really it could have been avoided if they had have just had that conversation up front. So I think it's doing that pre-work, getting clear in your own minds what you're after and then communicating that with the rights holder. And if they can't give you that, well, then you need to be talking to a different rights holder. Yeah, I would agree 100%. And as you were saying that, I also think there's probably a little bit of a, an onus on the rights holder that if you're not getting really clear messages from the brand about what they want to get out of the partnership. It's it's just as much their job to try and draw it out and get it on the table early, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and if, you know, if you're in sales, it's sort of one, sales 101 really. And if you fail to do that and the deal falls over down the track, well, you're really only kicking yourself at that point, aren't you? Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. I would agree. Uh, are there one or two things that you see brands – often get wrong when entering a sponsorship and if so is it what, what can they do to avoid those well to be honest i think one of the things that that we see a lot of is brands underestimating the level of work that's required to properly leverage a sponsorship so for, you know for a lot of businesses particularly if they're new to sponsorship they they come in and, and it's all about getting together the investment to, you know, pay the sponsorship fees or the VIK or whatever the, the deal is. Um, and then they think well, once the deal's done, they can just sort of sit back and all the benefits and the, the rewards will flow. But um, that's not really how it works in sponsorship. Getting the deal done is sort of step one. Um, but after that, you've really got to work hard to leverage it. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean a huge you know, additional financial investment, but it certainly is going to be a time investment and um, usually there'll be some budget requirements. So I think brands need to be smart about that and look at um, what's my upfront investment, what's my provisional allowance for leveraging, and then what's my plan? You know, have I got enough 
sort of people and finance to actually make the most because otherwise you're kind of throwing money at a sponsorship that is never, ever going to return value to you or certainly not to the level that it could or should um, if you thought about that up front. Absolutely, and and we, we speak to oh, some brands who are very good on that front. They they have a, a percentage that they a ballpark percentage that they will spend on leveraging and activating a sponsorship based on what they've spent. And I think knowing that you've got money behind you to leverage and activate certain benefits and rights in a in a sponsorship actually helps you talk to the rights holder about what you want to actually get out of it because you have some idea of how you're going to execute it yeah i think that's completely right on the other side of the fence what what about rights holders what do they what do you often see them getting wrong when negotiating a sponsorship and what can they do to avoid it i mean i think it's probably happening a little bit less now but i think probably the the biggest crime is that sort of sign and run scenario where you've got salespeople in there um who's sort of promised the world and then you know the ink's barely dry on the contract and um and you know there's just zero servicing for the sponsor so i think rights holders really need to you know much in the same way that brands do they really need to think about what happens once the deal is done as well and they need to make sure that they've got a really solid servicing plan in place because um you know, from my perspective, I think sponsors often the real value, you know, the bit that makes them sign the renewal and, and come back for more is it's all the little bits in between, you know, it's all the love that they get along the way. Um, and if you haven't got a solid servicing plan, that just doesn't happen. And, you know, you're going to lose sponsors without even knowing why. Oh, absolutely. I think, as you were saying that, uh, you can't see me because I'm at a, a different end of the country, so to speak, but I'm, I'm nodding furiously because two things, come, <laughs> two, two things come to mind is you said all those little things and all those little bits of love that they get. Certainly, that's how you should approach a relationship. And then if something does go wrong, you know, maybe you didn't handle something right or it didn't come off the right way, then you've got something in the bank that the sponsor is going to say, look, we've got a good relationship with them. They're usually pretty good. They've got something wrong. Let's fix it and move on. Whereas if you've, as you lo- I love that saying, sign and run, I'm going to steal that and I'm going to use that in my conversations now. But if, <laughs> if you sign and run and six months later something goes wrong and you're going to go groveling back to a sponsor, then you're not going to have anything in the bank to call on. And then the other thing was it's those sponsors that you sign and run on that when you get to the end of the sponsorship, and it ties in with that stuff that you were saying before about making sure that the brands know what they want to get out at the start of the agreement. They're the ones that sit on the other side of the table at the at, at renewal time and go, we just don't feel like it's working. And once you hear those words, you're gone. You cannot recover from that. No, that's right. And I think also it's a cultural thing that um, the rights holders that do it really well are the ones where the entire organisation understands the value of sponsors. And so... It doesn't matter if the sponsor's, you know, talking to the receptionist on the way in or, um, you know, the CEO or the chairman. Um, Every single person in the organisation has this level of awareness around sponsorship and I think if you can create that within your business, um, then it doesn't matter sort of what point in the business the sponsor touches, they're going to feel that love and, and once you get that right, I think everything else flows quite naturally from that. Oh, yes, I can... I would concur. So um, 
generally speaking, at what point should a brand or and or a rights holder involve a lawyer in a sponsorship contract negotiation or process? Is it should they be bringing in lawyers at the same time, or does it depend on what side of the fence? You're sitting at because remember that a lot of people will sit down initially with a cup of coffee and a bit of research if they're doing sponsorship sales well and say, Look, I just want to understand what your business does, what are the objectives. You wouldn't take a lawyer to that first meeting. So, when should a a lawyer generally get involved in that process? Um, Look, I don't think the side of the fence is that relevant. I think it's sort of, you know, it's the same regardless. And um, I guess the answer depends a little bit on how strong relationship you have with your lawyer, um, how they're charging you. So if it's by the hour, you tend to bring them in quite a bit later than, um, you know, if they're on some sort of fixed fee retainer. Um, But in all seriousness, I think, you know, the earlier you can engage with your lawyers, the better, because if if they have a good understanding of the deal that you've done, I mean, it's their job to then make sure that that's the deal that gets reflected in the document. I think... The important distinction to make, though, is that um, engaging your lawyer doesn't necessarily mean bringing them to the table with you. Um, I've assisted and and been quite integrally involved in some pretty major sponsorship negotiations and have never, ever met the other side in person. You know, it's all been sort of assistance that I've given the commercial team behind the scenes. And sometimes, you know, if you can um, work effectively in that way with your lawyers, then the deal will run through much more smoothly. And so I think sometimes people are reluctant to bring the lawyers in because they think, oh, once that happens, you know, um, the whole sales flavour is lost, the deal's going to go south because the lawyer just doesn't get it. And, you know, there's a whole lot of hesitations that people have. But I think it's more about giving them the heads up that you've got something coming down the pipeline, um, you know, getting initial thoughts on things that, you know, might be sticking points. So there's a whole lot of value that lawyers can bring early in the piece, but it doesn't mean you want them at the table. And I'd be one of the first people to say, if you can get the deal done without the lawyers ever having to come to the table, um, that's an ideal situation. When a brand is at that point and it's negotiating the elements and the benefits and the rights of a sponsorship package, what are some of the main areas they should really focus on heavily because uh, it really helps their business rather than some of those things on the edges that are sort of nice to have in a sponsorship? I think, I mean, there's, you know, the obvious ones around, you know, what um, what rights do I have in terms of using your IP? What sort of designation do I get? Um, you know, tickets, all, all those tangible things that, that are usually fairly easy to negotiate. Um, But I think aside from the obvious things, one of the things that really um, stands out for me is the social media angle. So I've seen a lot of agreements over the last few years where there's some pretty loose contractual obligations around social media. So it's sort of like, you know, the rights holder will... Um, promote the brand via social media, full stop. Um, And whilst that might have been acceptable, you know, five years ago, it's just not now. You know, I think we know enough about social media that um, we can be a lot more specific about that now. And so I think um, it's a good way for brands to leverage 
their sponsorship in a really low cost way. And I think that there should be sufficient time dedicated in the negotiations to working through, well, what actually um, does this look like? You know, um, is there a set number of posts that we're going to generate each year or certain triggers that will, um, you know, give rise to social media rights? Or I think there's a lot of discussion that should be had around that up front because it, it's rife for conflict down the track if, if the the brand has different expectations to the rights holder in that space. Yeah, um, I, I, sorry, I, I would agree. And, and uh, I think in the past, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts, but that a lot of a lot of a lot of contracts we see when we're putting things in the system for clients and stuff like that is that very very loose language like you just gave the example of which is just seems to have been added in there because well doesn't everybody want social media and if you're having those conversations as you spoke about earlier about brands making sure they're very upfront about what they want to get out of it if networking is something that you want to get out of your sponsorship then social media is not really going to help you achieve exactly. that and I also think there's a bit of uh, a, a bit of a an onus on the rights holders to actually go back and and not necessarily scope out all of their social media but at least say well how much social media are we actually prepared to give to a sponsor and actually make that special rather than well you can do as many social media posts as you want so in our inventory that's really unlimited because I don't I think that devalues it yeah, that's right. And it is a big exercise. I mean, I've gone through that exercise with a few rights holders now and um, it's amazing when you sort of force them to drill down into it how strategic you do have to be. And so, you know, you've got salespeople out on the ground talking to, to brands and, and sort of saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do that. And then, you know, it goes back to the digital team and they're like, well, no, we're not going to do that because we've only got X number of posts before we start devaluing our brand or um, looking, you know, like we're complete sellouts or, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's quite, for, for a rights-holding organisation, there's actually quite a lot of work that needs to go into it. And, and I don't think there's any excuses these days for not putting in that work. I think if you want to maximise your, um, your assets, then you well and truly want to be investing the time to, to flesh out what your program looks like. Absolutely, and I would even argue that uh, uh, even uh, poorly executed social media it can be just as damaging to the brand as it can be to the rights holder. So we all know that lawyers play a critical role. So take this question in the right tone. Um, but we all know that lawyers play a critical role in protecting our brands, both rights holders and and actual you know brand side. But that it often feels, and, and you mentioned it before, that it often feels like things slow down when the lawyers get involved because clearly you're taking your time to get it right while the rest of us are rushing around. What advice would you give to both brands and rights holders to help ensure that things don't slow down when the lawyers sort of start to get heavily involved in a, in a sponsorship negotiation? <laughs> yeah, how do we how do we stop lawyers uh, killing all our deals? So I didn't say that out loud, Paula. <laughs> Um, look, I think it's a really fair um, comment because I've definitely seen um, deals, you know, go sideways because lawyers have sort of, um, I guess, not been used in the correct way. Um, there's probably a few things, I can think of about four things that that really you should have in mind, regardless of whether you're a brand or a rights holder in terms of dealing with lawyers. So I think one thing is 
retaining that decision-making power. So I have a very strong view of what a lawyer's sort of place in the world is and we're there to assist the business to make decisions. So, um, you know, the other side has asked for a cap on liability. Well, it's not up to the lawyer to decide whether we agree or not. It's up to the lawyer to sort of help the business understand what does that mean um, what are the alternatives so that the business can then go back commercially and say, okay, well, here's what we've decided. We either agree or we don't agree or here's an alternative that we'd like to put to you. Um, a deal should never really stall because of a lawyer because the lawyer should never be the one making the decisions. They're just there to help the decision maker do that. And so what we do see sometimes is if you get a commercial person who um, lacks a bit of confidence in making that decision, they'll hand that decision-making power over to the lawyer. And as lawyers, you know, naturally we're very risk-averse. We see what happens when things go wrong. And, and so often we, we just can't bring ourselves to make a, a decision that trades off, you know, risk against business reward. And so I think for commercial people dealing with lawyers, they just need to retain that decision-making power and and sort of man up and make the decision, um, but use the lawyers to get the support that they need so they feel comfortable in doing that. Um, I think also sometimes it's important to bring lawyers into the whole deal so that, you know, lawyers often get brought in to advise on, you know, specific aspects of the contract or just the legal component and they lose all perspective about how important the deal is for the business and so if a lawyer understands that um you know this is a, a two million dollar sponsorship it's really important um we've been working on this deal for months and months and months so we need to make it happen and we need your help to do that then they're going to have a different approach to um oh here can you just review this contract for me so I think, um, you know, bringing lawyers into the context is important. Um, I think the other thing is that people need to understand what a lawyer's job is. I mean, it's our job to look at what can go wrong. Um, you know, we live in a world of worst case scenario. So, you, you know, the business comes to us to say, you know, explain this to me, explain what my worst case scenario is, explain what the risk is. So we're not giving that advice because we don't want you to say yes to the deal. It's just our job to make sure any decision you make is informed. And so if people understand that we're doing that because that's our job, not because we're trying to block the deal, then I think that helps the relationship between the commercial team and the legal team. Um, and then probably the final thing, which is a little bit of a bugbear of mine, is um, it, it's sort of playing fair. So. Often, um, you know, a commercial person will say, oh, bloody lawyers, you know, they're, they're not letting me do this, um, when really it's the commercial person who doesn't want to say yes, but they want the lawyer to be the bad cop. Um, and uh, most lawyers are completely okay with that, you know, that we, we're happy to play that role. And um, But I think then the, the commercial people sort of need to acknowledge that and then internally have the lawyers back to say, well, look, I know that's how we played it to the other side, but actually the lawyer was really helpful on this matter. And, you know, it's not, I think sometimes we get branded a little bit unfairly as being the, the sticking point when really um, it's a commercial person that, um, you know, doesn't want to take on and, and say yes to the additional level of risk. 
and um, and and that's the sticking point. You know, they're sort of saying, well, either no to the deal or yes to the risk, and they don't want to do either, so they blame the lawyer. <laughs> you you spoke uh, earlier in that answer around providing the, the the lawyer context about the importance of the deal and, and and that sort of stuff. Would it be fair to say that it's it's probably a good idea to explain to the to the lawyer about what you're trying to achieve? So whether you're the rights holder explaining what you're trying to help a brand achieve, or you're a brand explaining to your own lawyer that look, I'm trying to get this sponsorship over the line because I really want to engage with the community or generate leads or network. Do you think that's a fair comment that they should be that should be explained to them about why you're trying to yeah. do yeah, no, look, I think definitely it's, um, you know, you'd like to think that if you're working with a lawyer who sort of has some experience in that area, I mean, generally they'll get at a high level, you know, what a rights holder is after or what a brand is after. But certainly um, if there's particular motivations behind the deal, the more information you can give the lawyer about the commercial drivers, the better result you're going to get from the lawyer. I mean, I don't think lawyers naturally come from a, an obstructionist space, you know, we, we don't go in and go, okay, what are all the ways I can bugger this deal up? Um, <laughs> we want to try and help, but if we we can only do what we're armed to do. So I think that's a good point. You spoke about use of IT, uh, IP earlier, and so treatment use of IP is often a key plank of a sponsorship because ultimately it is a partnership where both brands leverage off each other's IP. What what are some of the practical things outside of the the black and white written contract that two parties can do to ensure that they protect each other and, and do the right thing by each other? Um, I think you know respecting that approval process is really important. So most um, brands, whether it be sponsors or rights holders, I think have you know the value their IP and it's worth money to them and. Um, so I think sort of just that general respect for each other's approval process and what ha- has to happen before you use brands is important. I think forward planning in a re- sponsorship relationship is important because it helps kind of map out some of the, you know, the hiccups that you might face along the way early. Um, because often, you know, particularly in these days, uh, opportunities can come and need to be actioned very, very quickly. And if you've got no engagement with each other prior to that, um, then obviously there's a lot more room, you know, to do the wrong thing. Um, And I think, you know, on that similar note, um, you know, with social media and things, there also needs to be a degree of tolerance and flexibility. So, um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a sponsorship agreement performed where there hasn't been some breach of IP rights by one party or the other through social media posting because it's just such an instantaneous thing. You can't wait. You have to action it. Um, And so I think parties have to go into these sorts of arrangements knowing that um, these sorts of things are going to happen. So it comes back to that relationship piece where, you know, it's worked together from the start, be really clear about what your expectations are, try and preempt as many of these things as possible so that, you know, you understand each other's um, deal-breaker, you know, issues. And then hopefully there is sort of an impromptu, unapproved social media, you know, response, then it's not going to be too far outside of the ballpark, which is really, I guess, what you want to be aiming for. So on on that point, should a brand really 
ride the rights holder's contractual obligation really hard, almost using the contract to, to rule the partnership? Or is it okay to be you know, a little bit loose and do things differently than what's actually in the contract? And if so, assuming that you say, yes, it's okay to be a little bit loose, how loose do you think it can both parties can be before it starts to cause issues? <laughs> That was a brave assumption, expecting a lawyer to say, yeah, that's fine, let's get all loose on the contract. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, look, I think, you know, it depends on the circumstances. So I think through the relationship you get to know, you know, what's the what's the absolute, um, you know, black and white rules that can't be bent at all and then what are the things where there's a bit more flexibility. Um, I think sometimes it's absolutely necessary you know, to remind the other party. So regardless of what side you're coming from, I think sometimes it's important to sort of say, well, you know, just want to remind you what's in the contract and what the expectations are. Um, but other times I think that sort of a response is completely over the top and it can be quite damaging to the relationship. And so regardless of which side of the fence you're on, I think you really need to sort of think through um you know, given the circumstances, is it appropriate for me to, you know, sort of pull the contract out or not? I think if something is coming up regularly and it's quite clear that the contract just doesn't reflect the reality of the relationship, then, you know, you need to sort of look at a, a variation and um, and adjusting the contract so that it does reflect the reality because, you know, at the end of the day, the contract's there to protect you if something serious goes wrong and you need to take legal action. And um, and if you've sort of just let the contract slide and you're not sort of honouring it, well, then it's going to be hard for you to get recourse under that contract if you ever need to down the track. So, you know, you just need to think through it sensibly in each circumstance to work out what the appropriate response is. Well, so let's say a rights holder wants to change a contractual obligation. So maybe they don't think that a benefit that was is there at the start really helps a brand achieve what they're trying to achieve through the partnership as, as well as they thought, or maybe they no longer offer those signs at that stadium or that benefit. How should they approach that conversation with the sponsor? Well, I think you've just got to have the conversation. I mean, again, coming back to that relationship piece, if you put in the work, it shouldn't be that big a deal to have that conversation. Um, but certainly you know, from a legal perspective, if you're contractually bound to supply something and you find out that you can't do that, um, then you've, you've absolutely got to have the conversation. If it's more, uh, well, we can, but we, we think there's a better way of doing it, well, then, again, why wouldn't you want to have the conversation? Um, I, I think the onus then is obviously on the rights holder to make sure that any alternative that's put forward, um, you know, is of equal or greater value and that the the brand is going to be sort of motivated to go with the change because, you know, contractually they're, they're well within their rights to just dig their heels in and say, you know, no, this is what we agreed to, this is what you have to do. So you don't want to, you don't want to have that sort of a fight. So you've got to come to the table with a, you know, a decent sort of offering that certainly doesn't diminish their rights and, and ideally perhaps gives them something additional that they might not have expected. And if you're good, it might even be better than what they had. If you can pull that off, you're a genius. Yeah, exactly. So, so once a contract's signed, as the lawyer, you are essentially passing over ownership 
mostly to the rights holder, but also partly to the to the brand, but mostly the rights holder to execute it and make sure things are, are delivered. How worried do you get as the lawyer that the rights holder won't meet their legal obligations? I think there's probably two parts to that. So I think depending on who you're acting for, um, you know, if I'm acting for a rights holder, then I'm, I'm handing it over to the rights holder to perform. If, if I'm acting for the brand, then I'm handing it over to the brand to perform. Um, I don't really lose any sleep over that, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of quite engaged with my commercial teams when I'm negotiating deals from either side. So I feel quite confident that whoever I'm representing understands what their obligations are. And, you know, at the end of the day, the contract is really just a, a sort of written reflection of what the parties have agreed to. So if if the business that I'm acting for, you know, if I can't rely on them to go and implement uh, what they've agreed to, that, that's kind of not a legal problem. That's a, a commercial problem for the business as a whole. And, um, you know, they're going to call me soon enough if, if something goes wrong and they, they don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, then I've got no doubt that they're going to call me. So I'm not going to sort of lie awake at night worrying about it. Um, I think if I give them the right advice up front, I make sure they understand the contract. If there's some particular risks that I think they need to be aware of, I might sort of call them out afterwards to make sure they're well and truly aware of what they've got to do. But um, then it's over to them. I think in terms of if you're acting for a brand and they're, um, you know, I understand what you're saying, that then you're sort of handing it over to the rights holder. Then, then it's really a question of is the rights holder actually going to uphold their end of the deal? Um, and again, you know, I think that's more of a, a commercial decision. The lawyers don't really get involved in sort of assessing, you know, do we think this is a good rights holder? Are they going to stay true to their word? That's something the commercial team have to sound out. And, um, you know, and you've got to trust that they've, you know, made that decision wisely. And, and if not, well, then you can step in and support them when it's needed. Great answer. Maybe I rate that question from the seat of uh, being the control freak I am. Um, so, um, <laughs> Paula, great chat. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about uh, what you do and, and through Minter Ellison, maybe even at the Com Games, what can they do? How can they get in touch? Um, probably the easiest thing is to track me down on LinkedIn, to be honest. Um, I think if you search in Paula Robinson, um, you should be able to find me that way. Otherwise, I'm on the Minterellison website. You can put my name into that and, um, and that'll pop up with an email that you can contact me on. So um, they're probably the two easiest ways to track me down. Uh, Paula Robinson, partner at Minter Ellison, Head of Legal, Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games and Managing Practitioner at Bond Law Clinic. Thank you so much for taking us inside the legal world of sponsorships. My pleasure. That was fun. Awesome chat with Paula. Obviously, the legalities around a sponsorship are important, but there was loads of great and practical advice that both brands and rights holders can take on board to help the whole thing uh, run much more smoothly. If you want to connect with Paula, I've put all the relevant links in the show notes at sponserve.net. Episode 21 has been a pretty full one, so... That's all we've got time for. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And of course, you can also connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn 
or email at mark at sponsor.net. Of course, as always, if you've got two minutes and you love the show, then be sure to head to iTunes and leave us a quick review. It makes a, a huge difference in helping others discover the show, so we'd really appreciate it. If you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponsor.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content to your inbox each and every week. And lastly, be sure to drop me a line. I'll give you a shout-out on the next episode. But until then, I'm Daniel Oyston, and thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to sponsor.net or search for Sponsor on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.